Like Dana said, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the elders here at All of Life, and it is my absolute privilege to teach the classic Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's in the lion's den, right? So as we uh, look at chapter 6, it's important to look also at chapter 5, right? Last week in chapter 5, it was all about humans standing before God, living either in pride or humility, right, if you remember that. What chapter 5 teaches us is that the proud and the obstinate of heart will be measured, weighed, and judged. Chapter 5 also tells us the humble people, or excuse me, people that embrace humility before God also embrace repentance and they will receive mercy. Now, because we are a gospel-oriented church, that might just like seem totally normal, right? Par for the course. You might take that for granted. And so it's like we take for granted, it's in our subconscious, it's in our bones that God desires mercy, right? For many of us, that's just where we start. But I want to point out that we are making an assumption in chapter 5 about the preexistent faithfulness of God. I want to pause and recognize that because that is an entirely foundational assumption. We are assuming, it is entirely foundational to everything we build off of that God, that God is faithful to unfaithful humanity, that this God, Yahweh, desires mercy, that He desires to extend love, that He wants to save, not condemn. That is an incredibly enormous concept that we build everything else off of. So chapter 5 is about the posture of the human heart before God in either pride or humility. And in chapter 6, you'll see that when push comes to shove, Daniel is faithful to God. He is humble before God. And that you'll see then that God is faithful back to Daniel. So what you'll see in Daniel chapter 6 is Daniel's faithful to God, God is faithful to Daniel and preserves him from the lions, right? But if we jump in right there, we're actually building our house on the wrong foundation because if we jump in right there, what we're saying is if I am faithful to God, God will be faithful to me. If I'm faithful to God, God will be faithful to me. But before any of Daniel was written, we see very clearly in the story of Scripture that it is God's faithfulness to us that initiates the space for humans to respond with faithfulness. God initiates faithfulness, and that creates a little pocket where we have the opportunity to respond in faithfulness back to him. Now, the entirety of the book of Daniel is about exiles living in the nation of Babylon. And Babylon has abducted these Jewish families. Babylon has expatriated them from their homelands for the sake of domination through assimilation. The Babylonians' intention here was to take away the Israelites' heritage, their faith, and their identity in order to make them just like everyone else, easy to control. And all of the events of Daniel uh, historically occurred around the year 550 BC. So this would have been before, you know, the clock backwards, 2000 to zero, it would have been 500 years uh, before the birth of Jesus. Now, if you were with us in the fall, does anyone here remember our study in the book of Hosea? So in the fall here at All of Life, we studied the book of Hosea. Hosea was written around the mid-700s BC. So this would have been 200 years prior to the historical events of Daniel. Now, there were other major and minor prophets between Hosea and Daniel, but the reason I'm pointing out Hosea as an important one is because it's all about faithfulness and we just studied it. So here's a quick summary of Hosea. God God uses a, a marriage between a man and a woman, man's name is Hosea, woman's name is Gomer, and he uses this as an image to describe his relationship with Israel. He says, Hosea, you're going to play me in this relationship. I want you to go and marry a woman knowing she will be unfaithful to you, knowing that she will be maritally unfaithful, ending up in prostitution. 
And then when she's there, I want you to continue to love her, and I want you to go back to her, and I want you to redeem her out of her sin and bring her back into, her home, back into your home and, teach her, and, and continue to love her and teach her what love and faithfulness means. All of this tees up that God is not an aloof judge, but he is a loyal, faithful husband, that he feels heartbreak and love and earnest desire to rescue, right? The foundation from which we then build off of Daniel. We also see in Hosea that there will be consequence for unfaithfulness, much of it brought on by ourselves. But he promises to be faithful even in consequence, and he promises to rescue both Gomer and the people of Israel out of the dark places they've gotten themselves into. He promises to pay their debts, to buy them out of slavery, to take them, in the words of Hosea chapter 2, into the lonely places, the places with no distractions, with no clamoring voices or lovers, but into the lonely places where he will win them back by speaking tenderly to them. And in that, he says, I will be faithful to you. I will make you mine. No longer will you call me my master, but now you will call me my husband. As Daniel and his fellow Jews were living in exile, 200 years after that prophetic word was written, they would have had that story of God's faithfulness in their minds as they were living in the consequence of Israel's infidelity. They would have held on to the promises of Hosea. And they would have held on to the fact that God promises long-term faithfulness and that God continues to demonstrate he is faithful in the here and now of the consequence. It's not just send you to the consequence and then I'll come get you later. It's I'm with you in your consequence and I'm winning you back. So Daniel... Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they and their Jewish friends would have had this past tense revelation of God's faithfulness through their journey of exile. And they also had present tense revelation of God's faithfulness, right? Everything from Daniel chapters 1 through 5, which we covered already, and Daniel 7 through 12, is a bunch of Daniel's personal visions as God's revealing himself. And Daniel 7 through 11 is actually, has mostly already occurred up to chapter 6. Those have actually been visions that are sprinkled into his life between chapters 1 through 6. And so all of this, this past revelation, the present revelation, all of this would have done this. It would have meant that Daniel and his friends' faith would have been in the fact that God is in control, not the beastly kings. They would have had understood the reality that God's control and his faithfulness is the sustaining lifeblood of these exiles. God's control and his faithfulness is the sustaining lifeblood of these exiles, both Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and all the other exiled Jews. And this would have been what sustained their faithfulness over the course of their lives, over the course of many decades in exile. So before we get back to Daniel, I want to define and look at faith and faithfulness. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1? We're going to come back here later. But I just want to read the first three verses, defining what is faithfulness. This Hebrews is also a a piece of scripture written to exiled Christians, people living in exile. And it says this, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
We see here, faith defined by Hebrews chapter 1 is that we hold on to the story of God. We hold on to. By faith, we believe that God created the world. By faith, we hope for and we have conviction for things that are not seen. Though it looks like I'm dominated by Babylon, I have hope and conviction that God's story is stronger than my oppressor. That there's more going on here than assimilation and domination. The reason I bring this all up is because Daniel and his colleagues have been faithful. They have held on to, they have hoped for, they have held on to their conviction of things not seen, that God is in control, he has made the world, he is my king, not the beasts around me. And Daniel has sustained this faith over, here's the crazy part, seven decades of exile. Daniel at this point is an old, wrinkly guy. In chapter six then is a story of his enduring faithfulness enduring faithfulness. And as I look at Daniel, like I ask, how has he managed this lifelong enduring faithfulness, especially in such a hostile environment? And it, it like personally, it makes me really eager to think about myself as like a wrinkly old dude, you know, in, in seven decades or whatever. And thinking about myself and, and this possibility that I might be a faithfully enduring man until the day that I die in three to four to five decades. A faithful man that is not bitter to the world with condemning religiosity, nor living like the world, looking, like just, looking just like everyone else with zero markers of faithfulness in my life. But like Daniel, to point myself to enduring faithfulness, so at the end of my days, I'm a person of wisdom, a person of purpose and love and joy, the kind of person that through my faithfulness brings clarity and encouragement to the people around me, obedient till the day of my death. And that vision is both crazy intimidating, right? As well as crazy compelling. Eugene Peterson wrote a book with a title that made famous this phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. That is faithfulness a long obedience in the same direction. And this clearly is the life of Daniel, right? Spending seven decades in Babylon, a hostile environment. But he's done this depending on the faithfulness of God and responding with faithfulness to God. He's depended on the initiating faithfulness of God and has responded with his own personal faithfulness back to God. And he is the epitome of a long obedience in the same direction. We see Daniel here is unswerving, he is undistracted, and he is uncompromised. And it sounds really good, but interestingly, we also can assume that Daniel has more than just uh, sincerity of intention. We We also know or can assume that Daniel has developed the skill of choosing faithfulness to God's will and to God's kingdom. Not only sincere intention, but the skill of choosing faithfulness. Dallas Willard is a Christian philosopher Um, And he writes a a chapter in one of his his books about how to develop a heart that chooses faithfulness to God. And he has these five steps, and clearly they're not linear, clean cut. It's this spectrum, it's a process. But he says this, in order for my heart to choose faithfulness to God, in, in any aspect, I need to, number one, see my need. The fact that my will and my plan is inferior and will only lead me to dust or destruction. I need someone's will that's better than mine. And so then, two, I surrender to that will. I surrender to that intention or that plan. And I trust that God's will is better than my own. So I choose to bend the knee to his plan for my life. I choose the process of surrendering my will to his. 
But surrender only gets you so far if you kind of bend the knee, but then go back to what you're doing, right? So the third step would be total surrender. Willard uses the word abandonment. I'm abandoning my personal will in favor of God's better plan for my life. I'm not just surrendering, start, stop, but I'm abandoning my will. I'm choosing to entirely lay it aside in full surrender to God's plan. Now, if you bend your will and abandon yourself and you just get really grumpy and bitter, that's not very great either. And so you then need to choose or lean towards the process of contentment. God, I've bent my knee. I've abandoned my will for your sake. Thank you that this is better than what I would have had otherwise. This is the best way for me to live. Would you teach me contentment and gladness in your will even when it's painful? This is the best place for me to be. And if all of those are in place, even imperfectly, we are then able to finally participate in the will of God. Because if I'm just bitterly making my way through it, am I really participating in the will of God on earth? So now that I have seen that his will is better than mine, I've surrendered myself, totally abandoned, I am content, now I am fully participating, seeking and participating in God's will. Now I'm actually working to bring God's kingdom to earth as is in heaven. And this is Daniel's story. And I'll I'll kind of like nod to this as we continue. Now, so Daniel has been serving a beastly nation. He's been serving legitimate evil people. But the reason he's been doing this is because he's faithful to Yahweh. New Testament disciples, uh, Peter wrote 1 Peter in chapter 2, and I'd ask you to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2. But New Testament disciples would have had Daniel in mind as a precedent when they wrote this. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 11 through 17. New Testament disciples wrote this, Beloved, the church, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. New Testament disciples would have been looking at Daniel as they wrote this. Faithful servants can serve beastly kings through acts of faithfulness to God. And we've seen this in the life of Daniel so far, right? Daniel's been a loyal servant to a rotation of beastly kings. But he's done it not through compromise, but by living out the values of God's kingdom which here are fairness and mercy and justice and truth. Daniel is living the Lord's prayer that says, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What this means is Daniel, in service to a beastly king, is more concerned about bringing God's will and his kingdom to earth than he is with undermining and proving wrong a beastly king. Daniel is living in the kingdom of God unswervingly. He's working to bring the kingdom of God even while living and serving in a beastly kingdom. In church, in 2023, this is our call as well. Because Daniel was faithful to God in his service to a beastly king, he excelled. 
He was known and trusted because of his faithfulness to God. He was made to be a respectable and trustworthy person by living God's kingdom values. You see in verse 4 and 5 of Daniel 6 that the officials and the satraps were jealous. They were corrupt. They were selfish. And they sought to depose him. But they had nothing on him. And the only area they could get him or they could like uh, trap him was in his faith. Now, one of the commentators I read in preparation for this was Matthew Henry. And uh, he says this. He says, it is an excellent thing and much for the glory of God when those who profess religion conduct themselves so inoffensively in their whole conversation that their most watchful and spiteful enemies may find no occasion of blaming them, save only in the matters of their God, in which they walk according to their conscience. If we just right off the page apply that, the question is, do we live so that the only area of accusation people have against us is our faithfulness to God. And that is an obedience that is worth being excited about. It is intimidating and compelling, is it not? Just this week, I met with some high school guys, and uh, they were kind of bringing up this topic um, of the challenge of living in a public school system and a world with increasingly confusing ideas of sexuality. They were asking, how do I navigate a world and friendships in a school where 30 to 40%, at least it feels like, of students are LGBTQ, and they think that Christians hate them? And the, the reality is, like, it's really confusing. I don't entirely know, but here Daniel gives us an example. Do they have beef with you because of your conduct? Or is it because of your faithfulness to God, even if that's their misperceptions of him? Are we as Christians loving our enemy, praying for those who persecute us? Are we living in forgiveness and serving our neighbors? And here we see that Daniel is so squeaky clean that the only way that they can trap him is to make up new laws. They literally have to make up something so specific to his situation in order to trap them. And here we see that in that trap, Daniel willfully walks in and springs it. Because Daniel has chosen faithfulness to God unto death, whether he die at 90 or younger. And notice here, like, the bizarrely high stakes of small faithfulness. Daniel's only decision here was to pray, like he did every day before. That was his act of faithfulness. To stay dependent on the faithfulness of God through prayer. And there would be no Daniel chapter 6 if it were not for the ridiculous cost of his small faithfulness. In verse 10, he knows that this is a ridiculous and life-threatening legislation. He knows it's silly. And yet he doesn't swerve. Interestingly, he doesn't do anything extra either. He just stays faithful in the small act of dependence on God in prayer. Daniel is epitomizing a long obedience in the same direction. And interestingly, Daniel could have prayed privately, right? It says specifically in chapter 6, he goes to the window, opens it up towards Jerusalem. He could have just shut the window, right? Made sure the, the, the doors were locked. Daniel could have gone on a 30-day tour of all the provinces in his care. In that way, he could have satisfied his own conscience. I'm still praying, right? He could have maintained his communion with God through prayer. And he could have avoided the law and its consequences. But notice this. If he had created a fake display that he had suspended his faith, his friends and his enemies would have thought that he had. 
whether it was through his cowardice, his fear, or his faithlessness. And the, to display the suspension of faith would be dishonoring to God. The same commentator, Matthew Henry, says this, in trying times, great stress is laid upon our confessing Christ before men. And we must take heed, lest, under pretense of our discretion, we be found guilty of cowardice in the cause of God. And here we see that Daniel's simple and unswerving faith was seen, and it also rocked people's worlds. One of the things that gets me so excited about this is all Daniel did was pray. He chose to be faithful in the disciplines of his daily routine. And this is what comes out of it. Daniel chapter 6, verse 16, and then 19 through 22. I'm just reading you what the king is saying to Daniel. The king notices just simple, small acts of faithfulness, and he says this. The king commanded, Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declares to Daniel, Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Notice that. I see you, Daniel. You are serving continually, even when you're being pushed. I see you. Verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and he went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And he declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel. He shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Notice this, that Daniel's uh, decision of faithfulness in his small things was part of a huge part of the equation in addition to the shutting of the mouths of the lions that created uh, Darius's proclamation of Daniel's trust in God. Before the lions' mouths were shut, Daniel's small act of faithfulness created the proclamation. Daniel, whom, your God, whom you serve continually. There's these proclamations of God's presence in Daniel's faithfulness. And because of Daniel's simple choice of faithfulness, the gospel was proclaimed at the end of the story. I want to point us back to 1 Peter real quick, and then we're going to read the end of Daniel 6. We read this already, but this is 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved church, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And Daniel 6 ends like this. Because of Daniel's small acts of faithfulness and God's faithfulness back to Daniel, King Darius writes a proclamation to all peoples, nations, and languages. Daniel 6.25. All the languages that dwell on the earth, quote, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His, dom his dominion shall be to the end. This God, Yahweh, delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. All Daniel did was not swerve. He chose a small, simple act of faithfulness, and it resulted in a ridiculous legislation that led to the proclamation of God's authority over all of the now per Medo-Persian Empire. And in Daniel's display of faithfulness to God, there is created the opportunity for God to display his faithfulness back to Daniel. Now, in Daniel chapter 6, God's faithfulness uh, is seen through miraculous intervention, right? 
the closing of the lion's mouths through some angelic being. Daniel is faithful to God, and then he experiences God's faithfulness through physical preservation. But we see from Daniel chapter 3 that this was not a guarantee, nor Daniel's expectation on the front end. Daniel chose to be faithful to death before he knew that preservation was part of God's plan. This is Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they answered to the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And if this be so, just for context, Nebuchadnezzar is threatening to throw them into a fire and kill them unless they bow down and worship his idol. And they say this, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as well as Daniel, they knew that God's faithfulness here was not one-dimensional or formulaic. If A, then B. If I'm faithful, God will do this. It's not one-dimensional. What they have here is faith in God's will, even though they don't know how that will specifically play itself out. I am surrendered, abandoned, content in God's plan. And I will participate even when I do not know how this is going to work out. Because I see that his plan is better than my own. And they ultimately trust that God is faithful to his people and he does preserve them from death. I want to go back to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. And we're going to spend a little bit of time there. There is the definition of faith in verses 1 through 3. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Verse 3, by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So that's the opening. Here's what faith is. And then chapter 11 continues, and I'm just going to hit some highlights as we cruise through here. It's a list of faithful Old Testament people. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. 5, by faith Enoch was taken up. Six, without faith, it was impossible to please God or draw near to him. Seven, by faith, Noah, being warned by God and concerning things not yet seen, constructed an ark. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Nine, by faith, he went to live in a land of promise. Eleven, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. And then notice this in verse 13. And these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them, and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out of, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All of these Old Testament, like, famous heroes eventually died. And they lived and died looking forward in faith to a better country, a heavenly one. And they did not, because of that, notice this, I'm not suggesting they lived and died fruitlessly because their attention was fixed somewhere in the future. I'm suggesting that they lived and died faithfully. 
Now, verse 11 continues, and I'm going to skip actually most of this because it's kind of the same thing. But he goes on to give more overview of Old Testament peoples of faith with their miraculous experiences of God's faithfulness and intervention. But then the writer gets to this important and sobering turning point in verse 32. So everything between what we just read in 32 is basically by faith this, by faith that, by faith this. And all these miraculous things, 32 picks up like this. So what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel and the prophets. Those who, through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises. Notice Daniel here. Stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel 3. Quenched the power of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world wasn't worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This list of Old Testament heroes, some experienced God's miraculous power. Others died horribly. Some God rescued, empowered, and preserved. Some were stoned, sawed in half, etc. But every single one of them were living as strangers and exiles on earth, pointing their hope and their faithfulness to a better promise, a new kingdom and a new king. And then chapter 11 ends like this. 39, and all of these, though commended in their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, that part's a little confusing, but let me explain it. When it says that none of them received what was promised, uh, we see very clearly in verse 33, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. We see very clearly that they received promises of God's presence and his faithfulness, sometimes miraculous. But what verse 39 is saying is they did not receive the promise. They did not yet see the embodiment of the kingdom, the promise that they were waiting for and longing for as exiles in this world. And what chapter 12 continues with is to talk about this crowd of witnesses and the fact that Jesus Christ is the establishment of this new promise. He is the perfection of the promise they all waited for. He is the initiator and the perfecter of our faith in this new kingdom. And this Jesus Christ established a new way into God's kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. All of these Old Testament saints were looking forward to a new kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 6, he is, Daniel is the human hero of the story. He's living in faithfulness to God. And God is living faithful to him to the point of his death. But what Daniel really is doing is pointing us to a better hero. He's pointing us to the hero that would live in perfect faithfulness to God, living perfectly faithful back to God. And this hero would come to rescue us from capital D, death. The promise. So we, as New Testament believers, because the new kingdom has been established, the promise has been begun, we are preserved from death, yes, and 
more importantly, given new life because Jesus, the Son of Man, was faithful unto his own death. Jesus, the hero of the capital S story, was faithful unto death. He was faithful to the prayer that he taught his disciples. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. He's established this. And he's established a kingdom through his life where we do not perform or faith our way in. But because he's bought us, he's rescued us out of our infidelity, just like Hosea. So this Jesus died in our place to pay the consequence of our unfaithfulness. He died to pay the consequence of our unfaithfulness. This Jesus lived perfectly faithful to God in order to give us his track record of fidelity that we lack. So when we were and when we are and when we will be unfaithful, he puts his record of faithfulness onto us. So in God's eyes, you, Christian, are perfectly loving, loyal, obedient, and faithful. Jesus lived, died, and resurrected. And when he resurrected, he demonstrated genuine authority and power of capital D, death. And that he not only preserves us from death, but gives us his life because he resurrected himself to eternal life and shares that with us. So now this living Jesus promises his own faithfulness. He promises to carry you, to sustain you, to intercede for us. And if I can point you to Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, Paul writes this, questioning Christians to build up their faith. Because this king, the hero, came to put his faithfulness onto you and now in living faithfulness is sustaining you. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, God, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but no, Christian. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us. I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate you, us, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. right? (laughs) Because Jesus, the real hero, was faithful unto his death, and because this Jesus experienced God's miraculous power of resurrection and is now living as our king, he is initiating and perfecting our faith. He is initiating and perfecting your faith, your faithfulness. He is initiating and perfecting it over the course of your life while he covers you with his faithfulness. That is his promise. This Jesus as king also preserves his people from evil. Meaning this. He preserves us from evil getting inside of us. Evil may kill you, but it will not get in you. Jesus at one point asked his disciples, what will it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? And we see here that God's plan, interestingly, so if we, actually, let's flip that, right? What will it profit you to gain the world and lose your soul? What if you flip that? What would it profit you to lose the whole world but still gain your soul? We see that God's plan through Christ is exactly that. 
His plan is for you to lose the world. And his promise is that you will never lose your soul because of his faithfulness. And interestingly, it can't be any other way. God's plan is to destroy the old world. His plan is to remove all evil and sin and abuse. So we need to lose the world. That is our hope, is that we do lose everything. We lose the world. I need to die to sin in order to receive new life from Christ. And God's plan is not just to destroy, but to create. His plan is to create a new world, a new heaven, new earth, where his glory will be the light of day, where he promises to wipe away every old tear and where death will be no more because it's been lost. And he promises that he will rescue his people to this new life and this new kingdom. So though we may lose the world, we will gain our soul. And soberly, I still consider and ask, well, what about the people that are killed here and now? In Daniel chapter 6, God does stop the mouths of the lions. And if I continue in my sober thinking, those lions are really nothing more than a few deadly felines. Though they may kill a body, they have zero threat on a soul. So for those that humble themselves before God and his son Jesus, there's a protection that is an order of magnitude greater than the miraculous intervention we see in Daniel chapter 6. I want to skip forward 1 Peter chapter 5. Skip forward three verses in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Peter says that for those humbled before Jesus, God will keep your souls from sin and its penalty, which is really the far greater threat. He comforts there in our souls with his peace. He receives there in our souls to himself, and he stops the lion's mouth from devouring eternally. What threat are a couple of felines that can kill your body but not touch the soul compared with the lion, Satan, who seeks to devour a soul eternally? So though evil may kill people here and now, it cannot get in them. And in Daniel chapter 6, because of God's faithfulness, the lion's den is transformed. It is no longer a den of threat and destitution. It is now God's stronghold. It is his temple, it is his palace, it is his paradise. And Daniel is able to trust God's restraint of the lion's mouths. And if we cast that forward, merging it with 1 Peter 5, here and now, we can trust God to restrain the lion who roams about seeking to devour eternally. So even our most miserable and destitute circumstances are transformed into God's stronghold of faithfulness. 
Our souls cannot be touched in his presence. Even our most destitute circumstances are his temple where his praise is sung. It is his paradise where his delight and his comfort is given, all because he is faithful and present when we don't deserve it. So as we end today, here is my invitation to you. As we take communion, are you concerned about your soul? Do you have a defense against the evil of this world? Against its physical and emotional destitution? And more importantly, do you feel secure against the spiritual reality of evil that Rome's about seeking to devour? And if you do not have defense or security against that, if you are concerned with your soul, then this message is God's invitation to you to receive his ultimate promise, the promise, to receive through faith Jesus' sacrifice for you, right? To save you from death, to give you his life that is secure against evil in all of its forms. Jesus here in Daniel 6 and all of the New Testament is offering a new life with an inheritance that is secure in heaven so that no matter how great the evil of our world is or the evil you bring to the table, he has lived, died, and resurrected in order to rescue you from the evil in and around you. If you are concerned for your soul, my question to you is, will you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in order to let him exalt you through Jesus Christ? Will you cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you? Now, we are, as a body, going to take communion. And communion represents his body and his blood that were given in order to make this new way into his kingdom. And we, when we take communion, we're remembering Jesus' faithfulness to us to the point of his death, even when we did not deserve it. And when we take communion, we are choosing, we're developing the skill of choosing our faithfulness back to him, even at the cost of our own body and blood. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you that you uh, are the ultimate promise and Daniel and the rest of the Old Testament heroes looked forward into a new kingdom with faith, not yet obtaining the promise. And yet now we simultaneously look forward to this new kingdom and its final establishment and your final rescue, but we also look backwards at concrete historical record that says the king has come and died and resurrected. We are experiencing the promise now. You, Jesus Christ, our King, have initiated our faith and our faithfulness. And you are perfecting our faith and our faithfulness. Lord Jesus, as we take communion, would you help us enjoy and rest and exult in your goodness to us and your faithfulness. Amen. If you are not yet sure about your soul, your kingdom... There's going to be a couple people over there at a prayer banner. They would love to invite you into Jesus' kingdom to explain what that means, to welcome you, to answer questions, and to take communion with you. Christians, would you stand, enjoy some songs, and take communion? Uh, this is my last opportunity to bless you and send you, and I've got two, well, one concept and two questions. I'm going to do it in 60 seconds. You ready? Do you want to be faithful over your lifetime to the point of your death? To the point of your shed body and blood in response to God's faithfulness to you, right? 
Do we want to spend the next several decades faithful even in a beastly kingdom? To embody a long obedience in the same direction? To live a life that is unswerving, undistracted, and uncompromised? In order to do this, we need to develop the skill of choosing faithfulness to God's will and his kingdom. I want to point back to Dallas Willard in these five steps. These, you repeat these in different areas of your life. See the fact that you need his will. It is better than yours. Surrender to it as best you can. Work your way towards abandonment. Jesus, yes, I will. Learn contentment. Jesus, I'd rather be in pain in your kingdom than be comfortable outside of it. Now I will participate to the point of death, as terrifying and compelling as that is. And two questions to help you in that process. One, where are you shrinking back from God's faithfulness? Or excuse me, from faithfulness to God? Where are you hiding, cowering, like Daniel, shutting the window on the reality of your faith and faithfulness? And one question, what is your reason? And I don't ask that to like hone in on you. I ask that for freedom. The reality is we have reasons for doing what we do. They help us survive. The reason I don't talk about Jesus to my friends is I don't want them to think I'm weird. Guess what? It's been working. It's protected you from them thinking you're weird. Are you willing to give that reason up? Two, is it enough for Jesus to love you to the point of his death, to the point of your death, with no miracles? Just his faithfulness and his love. I'm not saying he's not miraculous. I believe he is. But like Hebrews 11, some were tortured and sawn in half, experienced no miracle of preservation. Is it enough to live no miracles, just his faithfulness and love to the point of his death until the point of your death? If you want to check out any more of this, I highly recommend Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. It's what we've looked at today, but Hebrews 10, 11, 12 is this picture of God's initiating through his sacrifice of our new faith in his kingdom, looking at the example of people who've walked out faithfulness, pointed forward, and then 12, how do I run the race of endurance, holding faithful to Jesus, my eyes on him until the day that I die? Church, your king loves you. We, your church family, love you, and we hope you have a great week. Goodbye.